Hello and welcome to the 186th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday the 26th of September 2022 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week I'm delighted to welcome Frieder Otto Wolf to the show to talk about Rudolf Hilferding's Marxist classic Finance Capital. Frieder is a philosopher, political scientist, politician and humanist and also an honorary professor of philosophy at the Freie Universität Berlin. He has also recently co-edited with Judith Delheim, Rudolf Hilferding, What Do We Still Have to Learn from His Legacy, which came out from Palgrave, New York in 2020. We discuss what we have to learn from Hilferding's seminal work, what it got right and where it falls down. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, or enjoy those Patreon-only episodes and creating Discord over on the Discord server, please head on over to Patreon throw me a few commie dollar. Also, this week, Donald and myself have released a detailed layout of the current working structure of our Socialist Planning Book on our project website. It currently consists of five sections, 25 chapters, and is scheduled to come in at a healthy 470 pages. If you'd like to read detailed descriptions of each chapter, head on over to the website, where you can also find out how to contribute to the project if you find it a worthy cause. The link to the site is in the show notes. Okay, enough of all that. Let's hit the interview. So Frieda, thanks very much for coming to being here today. We're going to talk about Rudolf Hilferding and his classic, kind of Marxist classic, Finance Capital, a study of the latest phase of capitalist development. Who was this Hilferding guy? Can you tell us a bit about him? Well, he was one of the few people who actually conducted Marx's research, and he was a leading social democratic politician. So he was one of the founders of Austro-Marxism, which is really an interesting variant of Marxism, which has been neglected by the mainstream. And he was part of the Weimar Republic political history, uh, in many respects, very much confronted with the big problems of the great crises and, well, trying to find reformist solutions with a Marxist background, which is a kind of paradox. Yeah, so he was like he was on the reformist wing of the SPD at the time. Yeah, very certainly. He 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 served as I was very surprised because I hadn't I knew of Hilferding and I knew of the book and I knew I knew quite a little bit about him, you know, just from hearing about him. But I never realized he was actually the German finance finance minister twice. I was very shocked yeah. to hear that. And he he had to manage difficult critical situations. Of course, with hindsight, we would uh, argue maybe that he did not always have the right choices, but he had choices, and he had choices which could be justified with the Marxist background. But I think he makes it very clear that economic policy is not just the application of Marxist theory. There's something more to be done to make economic policy, especially in a bourgeois state. Expand on what you mean by that. Well, uh, I mean that 
there is a long tradition of discussing whether Marxists could participate in government in bourgeois society dominated by the capitalist mode of production. And the reformist wing in the Marxist, socialist, and social democratic tradition, and even in the communist tradition, gave a positive reply to this. But they never developed a real theoretical way of addressing this and were limited to finding ad hoc solutions to problems. And I think here Hilferding is quite instructive. On the one hand, he's also opting for ad hoc solutions, but on the other hand, he's trying, and that's very interesting, to actualize Marxist analysis in order to provide some orientation in these ad hoc, ad hoc decisions. And this is something to be looked at, even if you don't agree with the kind of theoretical solutions he constructed, and nor with the kind of applications he made of it. But the problem he was confronting was a real one, and a problem we have to learn to confront in future political situations. On the Wikipedia, I think they say from that he was the most influential theorist in the SPD in the Weimar Republic. Is that a fair, in the Weimar period, is that a fair reflection on his importance at the time? Well, I would say it's a little over, overstated. Uh, he was certainly a leading exponent of Austro-Marxism, but Austro-Marxism was not dominant in the German SPD. There, something which I could think in English, in English we could call ad hocery was dominant and not theoretical orientation. Okay, and, and so getting to the theoretical stuff, so he wrote this book, Finance Capital, I think, what year was it? Was it 1912? Yeah, well, 1911-1912. And so Just this was... before the crisis and the World War broke out. Right, and this was like an attempt to by Hilferding to kind of expand, I suppose, on volume three of Marx and looking at the, I suppose, the the further development of capitalism, in particular, what he saw as the emergence of the importance of the cartel and and finance, you know, the role of, of the banking at the time. So it, it was a major theoretical work. Like you say, you said yourself, it was like, it's one of those few kind of Marxists works that attempted to really develop a kind of a Marxist approach at analyzing capitalism in a similar sense, bringing forward the work of Marx. Yeah, well, I think the problem is that he was sort of split between developing Marx's categories and empirical argument. And he did not have a clear vision of the relation between the two. And this makes him often difficult to read, but he was quite creative in finding concrete solutions for the problems he was actually analyzing. So there is a problem of sort of resituating and retranslating the concrete solutions he found into a broader Marxist framework. And while my reading of this is that he, as the most of his generation, did not have a proper understanding 
of the very abstract and general character of Marx's critique of political economy. They tended to read Marx in the light of the examples he was using and seeing this as examples of concrete analysis, whereas Marx himself saw this as examples, not as a concrete analysis of the development of England or Germany or other states. So that's, I think, the limitation, but that's the limitation he shares with most of his generation. Right. So I suppose we should go in first and maybe talk about what were the main kind of things he laid out in the book and we can hope to then maybe critique him with hindsight and see what he got wrong theoretically or even politically. So like the book, he splits it up into five sections. There's money and credit, mobilization of capital and fictitious capital, the finance capital and crises and the economic policy of finance capital. So I suppose we start with like what what for what for Hilferding was finance capital? Well, that's a category he sort of constructed, and I think he constructed it rather interestingly. Although I think uh, it has to be developed and revised, but there is a new quality in the moment we have the modern corporation, which is no more based on personal ownership. Marx has been anticipating on this, but has not fully developed this. And Hilferding has seen that this is a new situation. The problem is a bit that he was focusing on German experience, which is not very typical. So there is some need for retranslating this into more general analysis, which would be applicable to the American and the British developments. But the problem of the new ways in which capital was really now acting and developing independent from individual capitalists and creating olig oligopolies and monopolies and thereby modifying competition, not eliminating competition as some people have heard of this, his generation had the illusion, but of severely changing the forms in which competition was realized. And I think there, Hilferding's concrete analysis is an example, not of an exam of a, of a result to be generalized, but as an example of an analysis to be repeated on the Anglo-Saxon and global experiences, which were parallel and which were not in the focus of Hifferding's work. Right, so what were these differences that you see between the analysis of how this occurred in Germany and what happened at the same time in America and the USA? Well, uh, you could say it's the different role of the big corporations, which were in Germany indeed controlling the markets. And this, and they were also controlling the production of shares. Whereas in the Anglo Saxon countries, to put it very broadly, the markets 
and speculation were determinants, and there was not much control by the big companies. Finance capital then is this idea that the banks were becoming essentially controllers of the direction of industrial development in Germany. How, how did that stack up? Was that a, a good analysis? And how did that vary versus uh, the other major capitalist powers at the time? Well, I think uh, as, on an, as an empirical analysis, it was rather solid. But the theoretical consequences and perspectives derived from this were debatable. Because he saw this as a kind of socialization in capitalist form. And I think this was a mistake. Because this was not socialization, but a new form of competition. A competition between the monopolies, between the monopolies from different branches, but also between the monopolized branches and the new emerging, not yet monopolized branches. And this seems to have escaped Hilferding's analysis. So he was part of the trend in Marxist analysis to see this modern company-driven capitalism as a kind of spontaneous development towards the socialization of labor. And I think this is mistaken. It's a new form of capitalist competition. That's true. But it is still capitalist competition. Right. You know, he talks some, in some places about there being no limit to the cartelization in the economy, that it could go to one cartel. That is the, that is one giant cartel is the trend. How much was his desire or his, how much, it, it seems like looking back that his reformist Marxist politics plays a role in his analytical discoveries, shall we say, that there seems to be a kind of a, a, a link to a gradualism in a reformist approach with how he ended up seeing this one giant cartel becoming a thing that the workers could control. Yeah, well, he, I think he underestimated the antagonistic character of this capitalist forms of socialization. They are still competition-driven. They are still limited to some areas of the economy, while other areas are still individual competition by capitals, not by capitalists, that's true. But uh, also he got wrong, I think, the role of speculation and the role of the banks. The banks are not a kind of, well, super control of the economy. They control financial movements and not the economy. And I think that's an important distinction which he has tended to play down. One place he, he, he made an argument that like, and now banks are, their prime interest is in con control of industry as opposed to a control of finance. Yeah. No, I think, and I think this is mistaking con very concrete developments in some German banks 
which existed for a general trend. And this general trend does not exist. And wherever banks have gone that way, other credit institutions have taken their role as banks. So, yes, banks may uh, become some great big capitalists controlling some industries, but then they are big capitalists controlling some industries and cease to be properly banks. Right. There seems to be, uh, for me, reading the book, there was a, uh, there was a core contradiction between the emergence of the cartel and monopolies and trusts and the increased issuance of shares. Now, he saw the like finance capital and cartelization working together to dominate industry. But at the same time, there was this opposite movement whereby corporations could essentially bypass using bank credit for funding and go directly to people who want to buy shares. And it would seem to me that he, he ignored these opposite tendencies because we see today yeah. industry wants funding. They don't go for bank credit. They go to share issuances. And that actually allows them to maintain their independence from the banking sector. Yeah, and uh, relates them to, to financial markets. They have right. to sell their shares in the financial markets and thereby they are linked directly to the financial markets and not to the bank directors. Right, so there's, there's a, that mediation through the bank that may have had a historical development in, in certain areas in Germany was, was bypassed essentially by the, what became way more dominant form, which is the, which has been able to yeah. sell shares. Yeah. In which the he has well. not properly seen because he relied too much on the German-Austrian examples. Right. I've heard, I don't know if you know, there's an economist called Dr. Michael Hudson, and he has talked about how in Germany, the banks used to take shares to, instead of taking direct, just a, a loan, offering a loan, they would take a share in the firm that they were offering credit to. Is this, is this yeah. the process that what Hilferding mistook? I think so, yes. He uh, mistook it for a tendency of real socialization of the economy. And it was still market-mediated, and this is overlooked. And there is an, a market alternative to it, which is issuing shares on the market. In places, he's a very good writer, it must be said, too. <laughs> like, there yeah, are some times when he has a turn of phrase, it's, it's really excellent. I suppose one, one of the things that... What I found quite funny going back, reading it with history, you're reading about this importance of the cartel, this idea of typically, which is something that he pointed to, but never actually developed, was typically in more raw material, semi-finished goods, whereby you could have producers coming together and cornering the market and controlling the market and thus being able to set prices and being able to get higher profits for themselves. So this is something that obviously can work for parts of the capitalist system, but can't work as the capitalist system as a whole because somebody has yeah. to pay the high prices. But what I, what struck me was that he had a very kind of an, in places in the, I suppose, the most important aspects of the analysis that was not very dialectical, that he did not look to 
the opposite tendencies. If we were to look, say, in Capital Volume 3, where Marx talks about, you know, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, he then has about 450 counter tendencies to this tendency. Yeah. Whereas Hilferding... Now, this, is, this is a big problem in Hilferding, that he tries to simplify and concentrate on the dominant tendency. Whereas in Marx, this idea of a dominant tendency does not properly exist. That's much more conjunctural. And I think this is, uh, has been overlooked, uh, not by Hilferding alone, but by a whole generation of Marxists who tried to find something like a general tendency of the, capitalist, of the domination of the capitalist mode of production of overcoming itself. But it doesn't. There's a quite a lot in there where he talks about the evolution of the stock exchange and the commodity exchanges. He seems to nearly, it, it's interesting because he seems in there to nearly have what today you would think of is a kind of a neoclassical analysis of yeah. speculation, whereby, you know, that all the little speculations in one way and another, they cancel each other out and you end up uh, not having an effect. He does not see any systemic effects themselves occurring out of the nature of speculation. Yeah, that's a big limitation on his part, that he does not see that this financialization is at the same time uh, creating an independence of financial development, of real capitalist development. Of course, in the very long, long run, is, this has to be corrected, but uh, in the medium run and in the short run, there can be important divergences and divergences which have to be corrected by crises. And he does not see this, this sort of precarious character of capitalist development, which is really running into deep crises ever and ever again, and deep crises which offer an opportunity or propose an opportunity of really challenging capitalism or the domination of the capitalist mode of production, to be more precise, because the word capitalism was not really used by Marx and Engels very often, and this for a reason. Another element as well for me was when I was reading the book, and he nearly pointed to it in one or two places, was it's very easy, particularly in his analysis of the commodity markets. So one, one thing he said with the strength of the commodity markets was that it led to standardization. So if you wanted to have a, an oil price or a, a steel raw pig, pig iron price, that you would have to, it would have to be of a certain quality to be sold yeah. in the market. So there was a standardization process. But we see in nearly every single one of the examples that he uses in the book of cartels that they are, they are always raw and semi-finished semi materials. So they're like steel raw steel or wool, commodities like that. So the idea that there would become a, a, a cartel in a very finished product like, uh, I don't know, like a scarf, like a scarf cartel, say, for example, yeah. seems or cars. absurd. Right. It, 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 seems abs it seems absurd. And so like, it, like to me, that's like a gaping hole in the analysis that he never, he never, really tease out the problem there between like why is it that oil 
why is it that seeing things that can be standardized and sold in the commodity markets are they precisely the same things that are the cartels and what is the percentage of say all all production in the economy value of all production that is purely raw materials yeah no i think it's very important that commodities and this is part of the competition process tend to be well you could even say singularized of course there is a way of making cars similar in different categories but at the same time there are ever more new categories of cars so this is a very dynamic process in which we have standardization yes but also always the battle to introduce a di decisive competitive difference and this is he is underplaying so the competition continues and continues to produce diversification of the commodities it seems to be like you know the natural state if i was a capitalist right i'm in right. my industry right now my preferred state would be to be a monopoly i would like to be the dominant capitalist within a certain sphere and then yeah. be able to charge uh, like a, a monopoly rent on whatever i'm selling and like it's that desire in every capitalist uh, business and that's the general tendency of mature capitalist markets is to go either to monopoly or to large group of dominant players with not as not not that much competition and he mistakes this process of accumulation with a kind of a steady state of a capitalist economy where in reality capital that may be generated in these sectors that become more kind of developed they're more like right now in germany you have mercedes and you have volkswagen and you have porsche and audi then the koreans came then the koreans but even even the uh, those the capital involved in those german car manufacturers yeah. they get dispersed out into new ventures which become yeah. new areas of capitalist competition and then go through whole that through whole process and it's this process of like accumulation and cycling and spinning off all the time competition goes on and right uh, exactly. it's a stiff competition it's not a sort of quiet sharing of markets we see even like on a we would think say big auto firms is quite uh, one of maybe a more stable market yeah. but even if you look at say the american market you'll see big auto companies american auto giants they go bust yeah. you know or you can say if you look at national car fact car factories french motor companies practically have vanished out of the competition who's left now peugeot have they been some of them have been taken over by japanese firms some of them yeah. are state owned now i think and as well japanese and koreans have taken over and to some degree germans and there is a, a niche for italians so but these all these are not just in, on the national markets there's an international market for cars and this is decisive and there's competition on this international market so tying it in then into international markets uh, he develops out of the cartelization a he he brings it out of the nation state and he brings it and to try and explain processes in imperialism that existed at the time do you want to give yeah. a, a, an explanation of what he saw were these kind of core processes that were driving imperialism that he saw 
being affected by the development of finance, capital and cartelization? Well, I think first it has to be acknowledged that he sees economic drivers in the development of imperialistic practices. But I think he has underestimated the role of the states in these imperialistic processes and also the potential for wars because this kind of competition is not limited to economic, peaceful market competition. It's always on the brink of degenerating into violent, violent confrontation. And I think there he has grossly underestimated the danger of the wars which were to come. In, in defense of Hilferding, I've been reading some of the, uh, I've recently read Bernstein's Evolutionary Socialism. Yeah. And I've read some quotes of Bernstein and some of the right wing elements of the SPD at the time. And they were really as racist as anything you'll find in any of the imperial other imperialist countries from standard right-wing people talking. Yeah. Like there was a very racist element to it. Hilferding, in his defense, gave explanations for he gave a kind of a material explanation for the yeah. development. He of, certainly of, was of not racist and was opposing this kind of racist explanations. I think this is one certainly one of his merits to reorient discussion to a materialist analysis of what happens on the markets. But my point would rather be that he underestimated the role of the imperialist nation states. Why do you think it is that he was underestimated that? Well, I think he participated in the general illusion of the period that this was a peaceful period of capitalist expansion. And this was, well, falsified exactly two years later. And I suppose if he was in the global south somewhere, he wouldn't have thought it was that peaceful either. And, well, even worse in the 1920s, it was more or less, well, foreseeable, although not foreseen, that this first war was not the last one. And that another war, another big war, was in the making. I don't say it was inevitable, but uh, there were strong tendencies working towards it. And, well, neither the socialists nor the communists were actually foreseeing this. Yeah, uh, there was a in, in in the introduction to the to the version I read. There was a very intriguing uh, statistic that I wrote down. It was around the the, the mid nineteen thirties. The the average age of people that supported the SPD had gone way up high, and yeah, that yeah. the average age of the Nazis was was way down low. There was an, a quote I read where he was still even at, even I think into the mid to late nineteen thirties, thinking there was like a. A, a legal kind of uh, bourgeois voting way out of the crisis. Yeah. Like, no, he certainly, uh, well, uh, this all, it all links up with his, uh, I think, underestimation of the role of the states in the process of reproduction of the domination of the capitalist mode of production, which is a big hole in the Marxist tradition. Uh? Also, Marx 
uh, in his critique of politics, addressed this, but not in his critique of political economy. So there's another aspect to the book which uh, has been, to me, been incredibly influential, was his dispersed comments throughout the book on the nature of a socialist or communist society and the role the cartel and that kind of socialization of production plays. Do you want to talk a little bit about about that? Of course, this is a big issue, but I think we can see that there is a need for appropriation from below, which has to be confronted with socialization from above and social statization as socialization from above is not automatically conducting or furthering socialization from below and therefore not automatically a part of a socialist transition. So uh, not only fascists, but also, for instance, the American reform economy of Roosevelt was make, um, modern Keynesianism were making use of government intervention, state socialization, even taking over some firms, etc. And they were not on the way towards socialism. And I think this has been grossly underestimated by this generation of Marxists. It seems to be a somewhat depowering emphasis on the, you know, this kind of reliance on the actual nature of capitalist development itself to bring forth the revolution as yeah. opposed to analyzing what the workers need to do for themselves. Yeah, well, I think it's neglecting class struggle. And I think this is a general element, not only of the social democratic Marxism, but also, for instance, of Stalinism. 100%. Like, it, it's quite striking in the book. There is like there isn't a very big emphasis on class struggle within the book within no. exploitation and one thing that's amazed me i only just kind of realized it last night i was i was rereading my notes on the book was that when he talks about about the banks and finance capital the whole time he constantly talks about how the banks are industry, interest, interested in industry and if we look to like history and you know certainly since then as well the banks are overwhelmingly interested in land and rents and yeah. not really interested in industry. That they come out of a milieu where they're dealing where they're money capitalists and they're much more interested in the ideas of interest and speculation on land and rent. I don't know if he even mentions the word rent in the entire book. Yeah. No, this is a real problem. And capitalist speculation itself takes the form of speculation on rent. So with the capitalist transformation of landed property, capitalist uh, accumulation itself takes this form. And I think this is important and gives a link to the long-term tendency of bank speculation. So what then do we get out of finance capital and Hirfeding's approach because it was definitely a reading it while I disagreed with it a lot I kind of yeah. still liked the book it was written in a in a way that I feel like was at least a, a good attempt at trying to further a kind of a Marxist approach even if it was I think like insufficiently systemic and focused on certain isolated 
tendencies within capitalism and then ran all the way for a hundred years into the future, assuming there'll be no counter tendencies. That's the kind of feeling that you get fundamentally out of the, out of the book. What do you feel are the major achievements of the book then in retrospect? Well, the major achievement are uh, descriptions of empirical tendencies and which have to be situated in the development of Germany and Austria and a number of problems of what categories we have to develop in order to really grasp what has been going on there. So Hilferdink, I think, poses real problems for Marxist analysis, although he does not provide the adequate answers, but uh, it's worthwhile to study him in order to grasp the specific challenge of the development of the domination of the capitalist mode of production of our modern bourgeois societies in the early 20th century. What has the legacy been of, of his work like? How influential has it been or does it remain? Because today we hear this term finance capital, but it's not the same theoretical conception as what Hilferding was talking about. Well, I have the impression that Ilferding has been forgotten for a large extent. And, well, Austro-Marxism has been exterminated by the Nazis. So there is a break in the social democratic tradition. And to some degree, it has been in the 1950s taken up by left-wing social democrats, but only in very limited ways. So the task of rereading Hilferding and critically sorting out where he is posing real problems and where he is describing empirical tendencies which have to be explained more specifically and more properly but still are real challenges for Marxist analysis, this is a task which has to be done still and which has not been done by these feeble attempts of Austro-Marxist revival so far. Is there anything then, Frieder, that we haven't discussed in the book that you think is worth mentioning before we wrap up? Well, I, I so strongly disagree with the conclusions that I often tend to underestimate the importance of the problems Hilferding raises. And I think this is the what we really have to get from the book, that he has indeed uh, raised a number of problems on the further development of the domination of the capitalist mode of production over modern bourgeois societies in the 20th century. And there, for instance, cartels, monopolies, and what they mean for state intervention is a real problem which has to be addressed and which Marxist analysis has to uh, address in confronting and taking up Hilferding's analysis. So I thought we could say maybe a little bit about what happened to Hilferding and, and how he ended up dying. Yeah, well, he was caught by the Nazis and killed. He died in uh, isolation 
he did not succeed to get away from France, and maybe he underestimated the danger. Maybe he didn't have a chance. I don't know exactly, but uh, this was really a tragic end. And I have analyzed one of his last writings where he was quite perspicacious in identifying the problems, but then fell back on ordinary common sense and neoclassical economy to find an answer. This is a very so, curious text. When you said he fell back on neoclassical economics, what do you mean? Well, he uh, thought this all this had to be resolved by a combination of analysis of competition and psychology. Well, maybe I can read something here. Hilferding rightfully stresses that there is a problem in the Marxist tradition concerning the analysis or the dealing with the subjective conditions of critical or revolutionary practice. But he does not take long to shift from addressing these problematics of subjectivity to embracing psychology. Uh, nor does he refer to the still recent attempts within the Marxist tradition to develop a notion of class consciousness and the ways it is constituted. And he ends up focusing on the problematics of the relation of what he calls class interest and class consciousness based on the transformation of this particular interest in a universal claim on and for society. In so doing, he underlines the important role of the state and the function of intellectuals in what he conceptualizes as a process of transformation with two components. Unfortunately, Hilferding did not have time to critically pursue the alleys of thinking considered and developed thus far in the concluding parts of his essay. But he was killed. So uh, there is a, there are interesting developments. He is raising problems which have to be addressed, but he doesn't uh, have or require the means to really address them. Well, on that note, Frieder, thanks very much for giving me your time today and doing the interview. Well, hopefully I was helpful in making the task of rereading Hilferding interesting without falling into illusion, into the illusion of simply reviving the kind of Austro-Marxist analysis Hilferding has been proposing. What are the major kind of failings then do you see from your readings of the Austro-Marxists? Well, the problem is that they tend to fall into the trap of falsely historicizing Marx's analysis, of seeing Marx's analysis as, as an analysis of an earlier type of capitalism, instead of seeing it as a more abstract analysis of the ways in with the, which the capitalist mode of production dominates modern bourgeois societies. I think this is in common with the mainstream of communist analysis at this time, which also saw this as a time of general crisis of capitalism, in which capitalism proved unable to reproduce itself and to reproduce its domination over modern bourgeois society. And I think this was a common illusion of social democrats and communists in this period, 
but it was an illusion. If you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website the classlesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. (laughs) 